0: Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money show, and as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out NIDIG as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. I have a quote from Carl Friston. I don't know if you're familiar with this guy.
1: Very familiar with Friston's work.
0: Okay. So he says, quote, the anatomy of any system has to contain within it a model of the environment in which that system is immersed unquote yes and then the the image that comes to mind on this is the microscopic image of a brain cell and then the macroscopic image of galactic superclusters i don't know if you've ever seen these images side by yeah. side but they're yeah. damn near identical um is that perhaps some form of explanation for this, we're plunging the depths of the psyche, but we're finding the secrets of the universe, that we have this map between our ears that's evolved to reflect the larger
1: universe? Well, I would say that and that map also evolved out of and was constrained by the fundamental structures of that universe. Um, So it's sort of going both ways. I mean, Friston says something really interesting. Uh, he also says, um, he says something to the effect. So I'm not quoting verbatim, but I'm getting the main idea that the self is not a model. Like the self doesn't have a model of the environment; it is the model, like of the mm. environment, right? Um, that it's so. If you if you if you if you understand the model not as something you have, but as something that you are. And participate in. You're actually getting closer to Friston's intent, and and in that sense, very convergent with what I was previously saying. That you know, it's not so much that we have ideas of evolution, but that cognition is actually implementing very similar design features oh, of awesome. introducing variation and putting selective pressure on it, and then introducing variation from that and in a self-organizing fashion. Wow, it's so, it seems like you get back to that line between like what
0: evolution seems to be kind of aim, aimless or goalless in a way. It's just kind of increasing yeah. fitness versus conscious, conscious evolution, yeah. or you're actually so, directing your own evolution.
1: Exactly. I mean, so exactly. And it, it's, this, so you get this thing that non-teleological, non-intelligent processes evolution, produce beings that act on purpose intelligently. Right. But, and, and so, and of course, some people will disagree with me. They'll say, well, ultimately those non-teleological, non-intelligent processes can't explain intelligence and purpose. So there has to be a grand intelligence acting on purpose to make us. Yeah. Um, and, and, and my response to that is, well, first of all, uh, it, it we've got a lot of evidence that it can produce life and variation in life um, and intelligence. And secondly, attributing it to a being that already possesses intelligence and purpose is not explaining anything. Uh, What I would now need is, is there any explanation of why that being is intelligent and acts on purpose? Or if not, all I've done is transferred the question. And generally that's when people will start invoking, well, this, then they And then it comes sort of around, at least when people mm-hmm. are open to open discussion to say, well, because God, you know, is sort of ultimate reality and ultimately reality has this sort of structures in it. And then you go, but then, right, it seems like what you're doing is proposing sort of what I think we're proposing, which is a deep continuity idea. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying, I, please, Robert, I'm not claiming everybody's going to instantly agree <laughs> with that, what I'm saying. Uh, but what I mean, there is... I think like there's Design in Nature, that's a book that was written about. There's increasing evidence that right, there seems to be these kinds of patterns that keep showing up because of intrinsic trade off relationships. Ultimately, I would argue between invariance and variance within reality. And they keep expressing themselves at multiple layers, but the layers are not identical because although the, the principles are the identical principles are expressed. Right the way they're expressed is it has significant differences within it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I I like what you just said. I like the idea that a non teleological, non-intelligent process sort of gets instantiated in the brain, but it gets instantiated in a living thing that's seeking and therefore Mm -hmm. it becomes ultimately intelligent and teleological.
0: Right. So the, the, the crux maybe of this debate between determinism and free will is that how do you get free will from a deterministic reality? And then roughly, yeah. and then Persig almost flips the whole thing and he says, No, there's no determinism, it's all free will all the way down, that even these atoms have a seeking behavior. So it's it's value and free will all the way down versus determinism it,
1: all the way up. Be. And so I know, I know very clearly, like Alex Divadovek is a clear example that it's it's agency all the way down even Mm -hmm. within microorganisms, right? It's agency, he likes to say it's agency all the way down. Um, And and in in a very intellectually responsible, and respectable manner. Um, The the, the, the issue I might have with PersIC, and I'm not, I'm not uh, Sybella King, I'm not an expert on Persic the way she is, um, and the way she's built a community very admirably around it um, is I think uh, I think when we invoke free will, um, it's not clear what we're invoking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, so, and, and this is one of the things that frustrated Spinoza. He said, if you mean agency, you mean self-determination. And if you mean self-determination, that's what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And that means no, no, nothing within the universe is comp- ever completely self-determining, or it would be right. completely unresponsive, and therefore you have to modify what you mean. But when I've talked to people, they often mean something like that. They mean an a-causal principle mm-hmm. of choice within them, like an unmoved mover. Um, and I'm not clear that you could provide any evidence that that exists. And secondly, right. more importantly for me, since we're talking about choices, why you would want that? Like, I, like this this clearly seems to be the case for me and many of the people i admire i want my thinking to be as as completely determined by what's true as possible mm-hmm. i want my behavior to be as completely determined by what's good as possible and i want my sensibility to be, to be as completely determined by what's beautiful as possible i like freedom to, like do i i would love it if i if i could be completely determined that way Isn't that, isn't that what we're seeking? Like, aren't we seeking to be determined? Like, and therefore we're sort of misunderstanding what we're asking for when we're asking for free will. I think what we mean is we want that the way we're determined to be like enmeshed with our processes of self-organization so that I am seeking the truth and the truth is determining my seeking. Yes. But, Well, do, do, do you understand the point I'm trying to make here? I do, I a- do, I
0: do. But there, there's some maybe presuppositions here that I, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, that the assumption there is that there is one truth or one direction of goodness or one direction of beauty in a way where it's, I'm not sure that, especially with beauty, like that seems to be the one that's very, you know, uh, more subjective. Again, we're stuck in this language all the time. I don't even know that, you know,
1: we're always saying subject, object, objective, subjective. We're really You're still making a good, good point. That doesn't mean I have to, I'm going to force you to try and defend the subject audit, object economy. You're saying like, can't there be many different things that are beautiful? Um, and, and I take it that's the case, but I, I wasn't trying to convey that I meant, but I want it that my actions are nevertheless determined by my 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 sensibility is determined by something that's beautiful, uh, and and so we're saying, but you might be wrong. We're not, I'm not making an epistemological point. I'm making a causal point. Mm-hmm. Like I really want it that I can deeply, truly, honestly say. I want to look at that because it's beautiful, mm-hmm. or I want to do that because it's good, right. or I want to believe that because it's true, yeah. and it's like, do I? Like, do I want choice beyond that? Well, I want to be able to not believe it, even if it's true. I don't want that.
0: Ah, okay, okay. So you're saying you want your value, your highest values to be what is true, good, and beautiful. Because what and you, I want that
1: to be completely determinant of my behavior.
0: Yes. That's interesting. That's what it is. That's what it is to be rational. Yeah. It's paradoxical in a way that. Yeah, I don't, that's hard because yeah, yeah. If if there is this again, objective truth or whatever, objective direction of of beauty or goodness, then you would want to be oriented towards that no matter what you might think you want, right? Like if you you don't want self-deception to come between you and that ultimate aim, which is part of what
1: you're trying to eradicate with wisdom, right? Is I mean, and Orwell made that point really, really deeply in 1984. Like, you know, Winston wants to be able to say that two plus two equals four. Yeah, that was the big thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. The party wanted to be able to say no. We want to have the power to say that two plus two equals five, and that's that. That's the tyranny. Yes, it's like yeah. they want something other than the truth to be determinative of your belief. Yes, so they they want to have the choice and the power. Well, yes, I I, I think we should. I mean, I'm gonna use you know, a proactive language here. I think we should we should be serving the truth, serving what's good and serving what's beautiful. That's yes. how we should understand yes. our existence.
0: Yes. Okay. I, that's very interesting to think about. I want to just, <laughs> we keep getting off on these <laughs> rabbit trails here, but I want to touch on one other thing you just said, which was the a causal principle, which I think Carl Jung described that as synchronicity. Synchronicity. Do you, and you see synchronicity as part of that pursuit of what's good, true, and beautiful?
1: So, synchronicity is very, very interesting. And, and, and like, you can put two unions in a room about synchronicity and get four opinions about it. Mm. Um, because, <laughs> like, there's a lot of variation on whether or not you get into really tricky spots because you end up saying things like synchronicity made something happen, but then you're making it a causal thing. Right. Um, Mm. And then some people say, well, all Jung meant is it's a causal thing, but we don't know what the cause is right now. And it's right. Or Mm. other people say, no, it's a genuinely a causal principle. I'm not Mm -hmm. qualified to determine what Jung actually thought in that dispute. Um, What I can tell you is this, and then maybe this will be a germ for us to talk a bit about. And and I'd, I'd like to get back to ultimately to myth and how myth may be a way of picking up on these fractal patterns that we participate in as much as we reflectively construct ideas about. Yes. Uh, but when you're, doing, when you're doing sort of inner work, psychodynamic work, um, you get, I mean, so Jung's like more formal definition is meaningful coincidence. You get things in the external world and the internal world, to they, they, they seem to be relevant to each other. Yeah. Um, right. And that, and that of course brings in all kinds of problems because we, we tend to forget things like, let, let me give you something that's easy to refute. People will say, you know, I was thinking of Aunt Agnes. I hadn't thought of her in like months and months. I thought of her and she called. Yeah. Oh, and it's like, yeah, but you don't keep track of all the times you think of people and they don't call. Right. Or all the times right. you think of people and they don't call. Yes. Right. Yes. Like, like, or don't think of people and they do call, but that's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. if you do, you realize, oh, this isn't anything miraculous. So you have to be really careful because when you're talking about things that are relevant to each other, well, relevance is, right? Right, relevance yeah. is a, a thing that binds the inner and the outer world t- together. That's one of its defining features. Yeah. So you can find relevance in a, in a in a lot of places. Now, on the other hand, right? What happens here, I'm trying to be really careful and really honest at the same time. I hope I succeed. You get, you get more of these meaningful coincidences that become apparent to you that seem to afford your path of transformation that you're engaged in.
0: Right. Yes, meaning, yes meaningful to your
1: valued path through life. Yes, exactly. And meaningful in the sense, not just of, oh, isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. Meaningful in the sense of actually affording you taking another step on the path. Yes. Uh, uh, now, that, that, <laughs> that is both important and <laughs> ambiguous. It's important and pretending it doesn't exist, I think will make people unnecessarily truncate their own projects of transformation. Uh. But pretending that you've now discovered some psychic, magical power or connection to reality, I think is also a mistake. Uh. And so I try to treat it more like I was saying that uh, this is As I get more into the depths of the psyche, I'm more liable to pick up on more complex patterns in the environment. Um, And that is going to sort of intuitively allow me to become more in sync with the environment. And by the way, that, I mean, that some people might already say, Oh, he's eating a lot of granola and that's getting hokey already, (laughs) but like, it's a very reasonable hypothesis, you know, and I've published on this with, with Leo and Arian, Leo Ferrara, Arian Bennett, that one of the things that's going on in flow state is we're getting an optimization of our ability to, to pick up on complex patterns in the environment uh, and, and do that in a very adaptive manner. And that, so we're getting a lot of, and people report this in the flow state. yeah, And, and it's, it's I, I'll report it too. When I'm in the flow state, I feel tremendously at one. It's like an Mm -hmm. ongoing synchronicity. You're sparring and your hand just goes where the block is needed. The punch just finds the space, right? And that really happens. Now, I think that there is a completely, and I've published on it, scientific explanation of that within the flow state. And what I'm suggesting is something analogous is happening to that when people are going through more longitudinal attunement to their environment, and they're mm-hmm. getting something like that in the synchronicities. That's what the proposal I would offer. Interesting. Very, yeah.
0: Oh. oh, man, I'm really. Okay, just a little bit more down this, and then we'll go back to our original <laughs> arc here. Uh, so, once you get into Carl Jung, which I haven't read much of, most of it's secondhand through Jordan Peterson, um, my knowledge of him, but I think he's just a very fascinating guy. He also has mm-hmm. this concept of circumambulation. Yes,
1: which he gets from Plato, by the way. Which he gets from Plato? I did not know that. Um, He gets the notion of archetypes from the Platonic tradition, too. Oh, really? Interesting. Jung is Jung in many ways, and this is why he's also attracted to Gnosticism, Mm. uh, because of connections between Gnosticism and Platonism. I have two finger puppets on my fridge. One is Plato, one is Jung. They're holding (laughs) Uh, hands. For me, and I think you can make a very good case for this, Jung is very much like the Plato of the psyche in a lot of ways oh okay interesting
0: so what I I've, and this is and I'm clearly inspired a lot by Persik's book Lila I'm also doing a series on that once I've been thinking I've been reading through the book a lot yeah yeah it, and, and and I looked up um I'm sorry I forgot the woman's name the YouTube channel okay
1: yeah
0: I looked up her YouTube channel she has some very good point like yeah. her analysis is very interesting
1: yeah
0: um she she's seeing it in a way that my my the guy I'm recording the series with and I hadn't seen it so it was very helpful um, and maybe I'll talk to her at some point too, because she.
1: I recommend it. I yeah. think she, she's like if you are deeply, and it sounds like you, you are. If you're deeply interested in Persic and, and also you know about this corner of the internet about meaning, the meaning crisis. Mm-hmm. Bella King, I highly recommend you talk to her.
0: Yeah. Okay. I will. I will take it. Take you up on that recommendation. So just to speak to circumambulation a bit. And again, Persik's making this case that, okay, subject-object metaphysics might just be one way of looking at the universe. There might be this other metaphysics of value. And this actually inverts causality. He yes, makes the point yeah, that yeah. you could go through the entire scientific corpus and replace A causes B. You could strip that out and replace it with B values, precondition A. Yes, and you would yes. you would change none of the data, but all of the interpretation, all right? Yes. So there's some relationship. And, and this gets back to, uh Jonathan Peugeot actually I read yes, his yep. brother's book The Symbolic Language of Creation yeah. and yep. they talk about the ancient conception of time being circular yes right and before we got into this linear conception of time which maybe yeah. maybe that was part of the axial revolution actually yes it
1: was, um, was.
0: yeah that there's this if you consider time as circular then really what we call causality Could also be there could be a backwards flow to that or something opposite to that. Yeah, Yeah, because the past becomes your future. Um, Yeah, so so the the future is somehow in conversation with the the present to pull it into the future, and that's what getting back to Carl Jung's concept of circumambulation. The way I understand it is that you can set your moral aim very high, right, and you're, you're basically visualizing your ideal future self you know based on based on values or whatever and then that act trying to accord your, trying to circumambulate yourself to that target is what calls your best qualities into existence in a way and actually allows you to bridge that gap so there's this and the way i think about this is i used to do olympic style weightlifting and it was so important to do visualization in that sport like you had to visualize your future self executing the lift perfectly repeatedly thousands and thousands of times to go out and actually do it to embody the action. So I'm like, was that me in converse, my future self in conversation with my present so I could go out and make that happen. Um, and it just seems like, so causality and value, maybe are flowing forwards and backwards through time, or maybe they're the same thing somehow. I don't know. I'm way out on a
1: limb now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Um, that's interesting because you, you you brought up an aspect of circumambulation that was never sort of sort of that central for me um, I mean circumambulation needs to walk around to circle around right and, and in the in the platonic idea it's the idea that we need something like dialogue via logos mm-hmm. because right none of us can get the complete perspective on truth but if we circumambulate it like if we go around it, we, we get a much better approximation to what it is yes. than any one viewpoint, uh, yes. that kind of idea. Higher resolution. Uh, yeah, and, and, uh, right, and, 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 I, and I understood um, Jung's archetype like, that we circumambulate around them, right? Mm-hmm. So they are attractor states for many of our different processes. Yes. But you're right, that the notion of an attractor state, and I'm building back to your point, is the idea of something drawing us in as opposed to um, us pushing it forward. Yes, yeah. So the work of Dennis Walsh, who I mentioned earlier, who's, who has been trying to bring back a scientifically legitimate form of teleological explanation is the idea of conducing um, that, so, you know, that, the, the that, the, the bird's wing is the way it is because it, it's conducive to flight, right? Mm-hmm. And we make those kinds of explanations. And we take those explanations to be legitimate, but they're not causal explanations, uh, but they are some kind of explanation. And, and so wherever, the, I, I mean, this gets very complex, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, wherever we're trying to talk about seeking again and function, um, it's hard to talk about it without invoking teleology, mm. but, it's also equally dangerous to think that that's just like causation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, he's trying to get the idea that what we're talking about is ways in which one thing makes a difference to another thing. Mm-hmm. And one way in which a thing a can make a difference to B is a can cause B. Mm-hmm. Uh, but B can make a difference for A if B is conducive to A. Hmm. So we can talk about A making a difference by causing B, but B making a difference to A by being conducive to A. Which doesn't mean that B is causing A. It yeah. means yeah. that it makes a difference to what kind of thing A is and how under how A can be understood. Yes, um, I don't know if that's of any help.
0: But, no, 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 it right? is. It is, and I'm. I'm, I'm I, I... One more thing, and I'm going to bring this back to (laughs) our original art. (laughs) Piaggio's book, again, again, it's his brother, I think, that wrote this, Matthew. Um,
1: Matthew, Matthew, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, so they they talk about this fractal layering of reality and that uh, what life is is essentially this intermediate force between what they call heaven and earth. And we could conceive these as like heaven being the principal space of principles and ideas and earth being like material causality. And there's a, a conformity, I guess, of the two in life. Like we are earth
1: animated by principle and information. And and John, and Jonathan would be the first to admit, and he has no problem with this because he's Eastern Orthodox, that this is straight out of Neoplatonism Mm. and what Whitehead and other people are doing. And especially for me, the most important Neoplatonist, for understanding this mm-hmm. is John Scottis Erogena, because Erogena, the thing I'm gonna talk about becomes very explicit and very clear. So you can talk about bottom-up emergence, how water emerges from hydrogen and oxygen and how life emerges from water and other chemicals, right? And mm-hmm. So you can talk about bottom-up emergence. But then you wanna say, but why do, why do these similar patterns keep showing up all over the place? Well, there must be top-down constraints. And that's what, and that's the Neoplatonic idea of emanation. Mm. There must be things that structure the space of possibility in mm. right so that the emergence keeps finding these patterns again mm. and again and again and again. So there's top, there's bottom-up emergence and top-down emanation. But here's what you have to do. You have, and this is perhaps where Jonathan and I might disagree. But this is what I see Eregina saying is you shouldn't think of it as it's sort of emergence up to here and emanation right, down to right. here. It's actually all the way emergence, all the way up and emanation all the way down. Right.
0: Interesting. So then is it then the emergence is sort of coalescing to the invariants that are being emanated from above?
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and notice you invoked very well the notion of a principle a principle isn't yes. a thing it's an event right so right. one species of principle is something like a scientific law mm-hmm. like e equals mc squared well where is that like yes. it's not an event it's right like, it is it's a constraint on how anything can happen in the universe so things invariantly like the speed of light yes. have the shape that they do yes. right
0: this is so interesting because i Another definition of life that I've found is I've said it's a survival strategy propagating through flesh. You could also say yes. it's a principle propagating through flesh or a survival principle. And I'm yes. sort of defining principle here uh, or strategy, I guess if you want to use that term as kind of a liquid law. Like it has this coherence, this structure that propagates across time, but it's also... Maintains its ability to vary at the edges. So to adapt yes. to environment, yes. kind of like DNA, yes. right? DNA has a very rigid, yes. consistent structure, but it changes a little
1: bit over time. Um, yeah. And that's, that's actually part of the very notion of information information yes. from Aristotle. The original idea of information was a particular structural, functional organization yes. that made something be the kind of thing it was. And so of course, the gestalt, course, right? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. The functional salt. Yeah. And so degree to which we invoke that when we're trying to explain behavior we're saying that there are structures to possibility that are as real as the structures we find in actuality and that reality is the complete interpenetration of structured actuality and structured possibility and and Possibility and actuality are co-determining each other all the time.
0: It's oh, incredible. Uh, so possibility and actuality. That sounds like cause and value again in a way, right? Possibility is kind of potentiality and you're it, selecting. It is, well, that,
1: yeah. Potentiality. Notice how much we depend on the notion that potentiality is a real thing, like potential mm-hmm. energy. Yeah. Potentiality is not an event. Potentiality is right. a structural possibility. What you're basically saying with potentiality is that this has become more probable. And yes. when we say more probable, what we're saying is possibility has a definitive structure or shape. If yes. you can assign probability, you believe possibility has a structure or shape to it.
0: Interesting. Okay. And then to reel this all the way back into our original point, yeah, homemaking versus housemaking. Yep. I'm guessing i'm hy- hypothesizing here with you i guess that homemaking would be more of that principle right someone that's structuring the relevance of yeah, the domain yeah, yeah, yeah. making it yeah. livable or or uh, structuring the affordances in a way that's useful yeah, to yeah. the inhabitant versus the house making is more the material the earthly side of it we're actually constructing yeah. it
1: um, yeah so you can talk about a structural functional organization that's emerging when you build a house. Aristotle would be happy saying that we've informed the wood mm-hmm. so that it now acts like a house. That's mm. what we're doing. We're actualizing the wood into a house. Mm. Uh, what Walsh would say is yeah, but when we're making it a home, we're trying to get it to instantiate, embody, and represent important principles mm. that we think regulate all of the cosmos for us. Now, like engineering course, principles, different. even.
0: So engineering principles, that, yeah.
1: but, but to, in a house, yes. Yeah. I think in a home, what we're talking about is we're talking about um, person-making principles.
0: Mm. Interesting.
1: So, and this is where the engineering starts, I would say, to shade into the architecture, mm-hmm. uh, which is... What are you doing? So what is your model of what a person is as opposed to a physical object moving through space is what you're considering when you're making a house. You're making a home. is like, but how can we shape the space? Again, we're not violating the physics, but how can we shape the physics so that it becomes better at making a person? How do we do that? Right. So notice some things. We we assign rooms to particular people. We don't have to do that, but we do. Yeah, like, that's yeah. that's your bedroom, right? And that's her bedroom, and that's his bedroom. Um, and then we and then we have common space where we put up representations that it's shared. Like here's the family portrait of everybody in the living room, and we call it the living room because we're supposed to share. Like and so we're doing all this stuff to try and afford, right? Two principles by which we make persons. Yes. Right. Yes. The principle of individuation and the principle of group participation. And so we're structuring individuation and participation to make better, to to turn the house space into a home, into yes. a person making space.
0: This is the, again, I'm going back to Peugeot's book, the pulling down of meaning into matter and the pulling yes. up of matter towards meaning and yes. blending yes. them in between.
1: Yeah, so what you're doing is you are, yeah, you you are you're doing bottom-up construction of this space so it emerges as a place mm-hmm. but right uh, But then you are placing things within it in order to change the kind of place it is. Yes, in person making place. yes. And so this
0: um, then points to this, Reciprocal relationship. In this case, yes. we'll go we'll keep going with this analogy of and this is getting back to Churchill's quote, we shape our buildings and our buildings shape us. I think this Very equally, much. as we said offline earlier, it applies to tools more generally or just our creations. Yeah, we create is, these things and there's a reflexivity yeah. back into us and we're in relationship so, with them.
1: I think I might be misremembering his name. Malafos. this is his, uh, you know, how things shape the mind. That's the book. And this is what's called material engagement theory, oh, okay. and it's the idea that we are not just using these things. We and this goes back to psychotechnologies and technologies. As we use these things, they shape us in ways that we do not intend. Mm. They may make us different. Now they may shape us in ways we intend, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but they all they always also shape us in ways uh, we do not intend. Right, and and. and and then part of what uh, Churchill was talking about there, of course, is the the artistry of architectures to try and use the fact that places shape us uh, in some sort of good fashion, right? Yes. rather than letting that be uh, just bottom-up emergent, also have it be top-down um, justifiable or something like that.
0: Right. It, it, w- w- is software versus hardware kind of an... Analogy here too, where we've got the home builder doing the hardware and the homemaker kind
1: of creating the software. So the, um, the I think I would say the housemaker is making the hardware and the homemaker is making. The software. Sorry,
0: I may have said that backwards. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, I may have heard you the wrong way too. Yeah, uh, it's analogous to software um, in that the software can inform many different instances of hardware, this is called multiple realizability. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things that brought down the identity theory. The identity theory is that whenever I'm talking about a mental state, I'm talking about a brain state, that Mm -hmm. they're identical, Mm -hmm. I can reduce mental states, I can reduce and replace mental states with brain states. This is a materialist viewpoint, right? Yeah, a very strict uh, kind of material. So, you know, Putnam and Fodor and other people pointed out, but if artificial intelligence works, That can't be true, because the intelligent behavior is not running on a brain state, it's running on silicon and electricity and copper, and none of those things are doing anything in my brain. Yeah. So the same intelligent state can be realized in very different media. Mm. So it's multiply realizable. So the same structural functional organization, the logical structure of the program, yes, Somehow the logical structure of the pro not somehow there's way but I'm just saying, right. Yeah. It can be real, but the point is, it, then the idea is, well, maybe there's, you know, maybe how pain is realized in an octopus brain is actually very different from how pain is realized in a human brain mm-hmm. or the way intelligence is realized in a crow brain is very different from, so you don't even have to go to different biologies, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry. But, but, sorry. You don't have to just go, between biology is a non-biological thing. You can maybe even find multiple realizability uh, within different species. And then, of course, there might be alien species that have a t- completely different evolutionary history, and they don't have anything like what we have, Yeah. right? Yeah. right. And, and so the idea of uh, the distinction between software and hardware is based on the idea of multiple realizability. And this is very much... It's not identical to, sorry for that, but it's not identical to the Aristotelian idea, but it's similar to the Aristotelian idea of you have a certain logical structure that informs matter and actualizes it in a particular way. Mm-hmm.
0: So this material engagement theory, then, it would, could we roughly say, so the creations are influencing the creator and vice versa, iteratively, would then Psychotechnologies would be more in that software domain than the hardware domain. Yeah. Are they they then more or differently influential on our development? Uh, I was just, and this is a hypothesis again, that we have neuroplasticity. We know that we're more plastic neurologically than we are physiologically, right? At least over shorter spans of time. You can learn something and train your mind to do something differently more so than you can train your body to, you know, be seven feet tall or whatever in one generation. So do psychotechnologies then disproportionately impact this? Is it a faster reciprocity between the agent and the psychotechnology than a standard
1: technology? I think so. Uh, uh, And the reason I think so is the most studied effect in all of psychology. So the, the, the thing that has the most published articles attached to it, which is called the Stroop effect. Okay, I've never heard of this. <laughs> so if you, want to jo- if you want to go to the psychology uh, party, make sure you can invoke <laughs> the Stroop effect. Uh, it's like also the cocktail party phenomena, cocktail party effect. S-T-R-O-O-P? But- yes. Okay. So the Stroop effect is this. I'm going to show you, I'm not going to do it right here, I'll just describe it to you. I'll show you a bunch of words, and these are color words, like the word red, blue, green, yellow. Mm. But the word red is in blue ink. Mm. And I asked you to tell me the color of the ink. And what people will say is they'll start to say red, and then blue, and there's a delay. <laughs> yeah, measurable yeah. delay, a reliable measurable de- delay. And what's interesting is you can't placebo your way out of the Stroop effect. I can incentivize you to get it right, and it doesn't matter. You'll still suffer the stupid Effect. Now, it's like, why? Because literacy has been so automatized, so internalized to your cognition, that mm. you can't separate your cognition from it like easily or readily. You have to pull it apart with a lot of effort. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, just to make it more provocative. There are two things that you can do to actually reduce the Stroop effect. Even though I can't placebo you out of it, even though I can't incentivize you out of it, I can hypnotize you and reduce the Stroop effect. That's hmm. how Emir Raz was able to show that hypnotism is an objective event and not just people pretending because uh-huh. you can't pretend your way out of the Stroop effect. Uh-huh. He hypnotized people and they, they, he was able to reliably and significantly reduce the Stroop effect. What's the other thing Malikowski and others um, more in Malikowski 2009. And then later people who have practiced mindfulness extensively can also reduce the Stroop effect reliably. Huh, interesting.
0: So, and those are both psychotechnological well, those are effects. Both. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Interesting. So, okay.
1: hypnotism isn't isn't your particular skill. It's a way of standardizing information so that your brain and my brain link up in some way, so that your capacity, your self organizing capacity, gets linked to right the discussion. All hypnotism is ultimately self hypnotism that is using another person, right? Right, 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 right. You're kind of mindless okay. psychotechnology too.
0: It's kind of like opening the command line on your mind or something, and then letting.
1: Someone else. Well, it's, it's around the, it, it it relies on the deep fact that you, well, that's what we're talking about. You internalize other people's perspectives into your own Mm. radically deeply. If you didn't do that, you couldn't, your ability to step back in mindfulness and look at your own perspective has come, the would argue this, the guy who came up with cultural tools right, would argue that the way, and I think he's right, the evidence I think supports this, the way I get the ability to step back and look at my own perspective is by imitating your perspective on my perspective. I imitate, you see children doing this, they imitate the parents' perspective on them and they imitate it more and more and more until they can do it without the parent and then it just becomes a way in which they can stand back and look at their own mind. We literally transcend through other by internalizing other people. That's And hypnotism, I would argue, taps into that ability.
0: Wow. So it's this, I'm reminded of this quote, actually, that the, I'll paraphrase, this is a famous, I think a US Navy captain, he said, uh, the goal of the leader, the goal of the captain is to see the ship through the eyes of others, like to to be able to actually transcend to the you know into the role of captain if you will and do it effectively he has to look through the eyes of everyone else which which to get back to economics like this is what a market is doing effectively it's like you're plugging into distributed cognition
1: yes yes
0: um and seeing the world through the eyes of everyone else so you can focus on what you're good at and depend on everyone
1: else to figure out the rest so that is exactly the right metaphor to use or the quote because uh hutchins who wrote one of the the original books on distributed cognition, Cognition in the Wild, did it by doing an ethnography of how a crew navigates a ship. Hmm. No one person navigates a ship. Right. It, about, it's a distributed cognitive system and a bunch of tools and a bunch of psychotechnology, uh, networking brains and machinery together that steers the ship.
0: Interesting. Okay. So, psychotechnologies, they change us more rapidly than normal technologies, I guess.
1: I think so. I um, think so. They are... At least, I'm, not, I'm not sure about more rapidly, but perhaps more deeply, at least.
0: More deeply. Okay. Because, and th- I think that one seems... I don't want to say seems obvious, but it seems obvious to me. Like, if you just think about literacy... It's like yes. you pull out literacy, how yes. <laughs> impacted would you be? I think you made this point yes. in one of your lectures. Yes. Yes. yes, And it's like, it's hard to even imagine how deeply that would impact you. It's so deep that yes. it's hard to yes. even actually generate the thought because how would yes. you think without literacy? You'd think yes.
1: imagistically,
0: I guess. I don't know. Um, yes. So, and then the externalization of psychotechnologies
1: are mm-hmm. social institutions. I think so. I mean, part of what we do is we. I mean, the the original computers were human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The original entities called computers were human beings. You had a floor in a business where if you needed computation, you sent it down there and they did it. Yes. And those, right? Um, um, And so I'm using that as, as a metonym for the idea that we're always doing that we're we're always tapping into the power of distributed computation yes, distributed yes. cognition uh, when we're creating social institutions and then what we're doing is we're standardizing the information flow the information formatting because we want we're we're trying to psychotech psychoengineer yes. right effective distributed cognition and we, and we use language about being you know we want everybody to be on the same team and what we're basically saying is we want We want to make sure that, right, that people can plug into the distributed cognition very effectively and the reverse, Mm -hmm. that the distributed cognition can plug very effectively into them. Right. Now, that's a power, and it can be used for good and for ill, as you can well imagine. Yes. Right? But it is a tremendous power. And, And so institutions are ways in which we, I would argue, where we create systems of psychotechnologies so that we create reliable configurations of distributed cognition. Yes,
0: okay, agreed. And then the, in the economic lens, the totality of global distributed cognition, we would just say is the market, so the global market, if you will. Sure. And pick, you know, pick a commodity, doesn't matter, copper, titanium, whatever. There's a price associated with copper or titanium yeah. This is the indicator of relevance. This is the intersection of supply and demand. So we have yeah. uh, potentially unlimited demand, right? There's Humans are never satisfied, frankly, but there's a strictly limited quantity of capital. Wherever yeah. those two curves cross is the price. So it's kind of like the indicator for relevance in the distributed salience landscape of market actors something like everyone's voting on how much titanium or copper we need is demanded in the moment versus how much there is. There's the price. So that price metric or price signal becomes the nerve signal that coordinates the total distributed cognition of the marketplace.
1: Yeah. It it makes use of, I would say it makes use to some degree of Mead's notion, uh, George Herbert Mead's notion of the generalized other. Um, so me says, you know, I'm playing baseball he's American, right? Of course, <laughs> um, I play baseball and, um, I have to do two things. I, I, I mean, I have to have a model of how other people are going to play. And I have to, I have to have a little bit of specificity. here. I have to know that Jones is on second base, but I can't track everybody all the time specifically. It's, it will overwhelm working memory. Mm-hmm. So, what do I do? I form a generalized other. I form a generalized model of wh- what any one of my teammates is likely to be like. And therefore, I can interact with that. And that way, uh, interacting at that one point, I get a representation that allows me to interact with any potential part, or, or also, or, or thereby, interact mm-hmm. with the whole team. So, the whole team comes into the representation of the generalized other, I interact with that, right? And and, and then I write that facilitate. So everybody interacts with everybody rather than everybody. So rather than everybody carrying around nine models of everybody else. And those mm-hmm. all, all we, what you have is the generalized other. And, and then and then what Mead argues, of course, what he says is of course, this is not just happening when we're playing baseball. This mm-hmm. is happening when we're doing any distributed cognition. And so we 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 gravitate towards things that allow us to get. A generalized other me- measure or metric. Mm. So, 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 so go ahead. Uh,
0: I was, we were trying to simplify the world, to decomplexify the world, right? By kind of putting uh, people in an, a bucket of expectations, something like that.
1: Yeah, you're doing a kind. You're doing very much. So Mead wouldn't say this because I don't think he had the language available to him. But we're doing we're doing a kind of data compression. Mm-hmm. We're doing like taking all this plot on a scatter plot, all the points and drawing the line of best fit. And yes. that line of best fit is the best way of predicting on average how anybody's gonna play and it allows me to generalize to new players that I haven't met before. Yes, Data compression, what I've argued with other people like as collaborators is again, you see the brain doing lots of data compression whenever you're getting, you know, synchronized firing. But, but the thing is you see the brain doing the opposite. You have self-organizing right. criticality the brain synchronizes to do data compression, and then it avalanches, right? To open up new, like it's like evolution, to open up new possibilities for new synchronizations. And then it, right? And so it's constantly oscillating back and forth between them. And there are labs, again, this is controversial because whenever you're doing anything with the brain, it's controversial. But where that, that the flexibility of that oscillation correlates with measures of general intelligence. Interesting. Okay, so then, all right. So, so this brings up the thing about the generalized other—the price you pay. So you get this tremendous ability to deal in general. Yeah. But you may have forgotten that Jones is the guy on second base, and Jones always screws up if a southpaw hits to the shortstop.
0: Mm, right. So. So this. Generalizability or generalization is giving you it's data compression. So you're getting greater quantity of generalized data yeah. in your working yeah. memory, but yeah. you're giving up yeah. quality potentially,
1: these these specifics yes. about Jones. And and this is again one of these universal scale-invariant trade-offs. Yes. It's called the generalizability discrimination trade-off. Yes. As you gain in generalizability, you lose in discrimination. As you lose in discrimination, you gain in Generalizability, and this is one of the philosophical arguments
0: about money. Actually, is how how it influenced our thinking to be more. I guess this is the discriminatory because it's you put a quantifiable value on everything, including labor and you know human hours and services. So it makes us less. Um. You know, you'll look at the cost of a massage is basically just the cost per hour versus the. It kind of obfuscates the quality. You know, yeah, you start so I think it's on the price. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, it it generalizes. So it's like uh, you lose you lose what so it's lossy. That, that's the term, it's lossy. Most generalized most data compression is lossy, right? Um, and and that I think is a clear example of it. Mm-hmm. So you're you're losing what is idiosyncratically specific about that that yes. can't be captured by the money. Yes. Um, and this is like, we were talking this before we started the recording. This is how, although the way literacy allows you this capacity to get access to other people's minds, mm-hmm. right, it comes at a cost, which is, it tends to overprivilege, or over-privilege and overprioritize mm-hmm. the, the propositional level. And we right. lose the procedural and the perspectival and the participatory.
0: Right. And this is, Contributing to the meaning crisis to some extent. Very I mean, much so. Yes. Very much
1: so. Yeah. So there are ways, I'm not saying this is always happening, but there are ways in which the lossy data compression in money and propositional tyranny can noxiously interact with each other and reinforce mm-hmm. each other. Interesting. Yes. Okay. So I want to add a wrinkle to this. And I guess
0: first, if we zero in on money and the, clarify my thinking here, I've been thinking about it like, is it? A, I've called it a technology in most of my writing historically, which it is. Yeah. It is a technology. Yeah. It has yeah. uh, specific properties or affordances, if you will, that people, yeah. market actors seek. We seek yeah. these particular properties of the technology to make something that's tradable and scarce and all these other things. But it also has this psychotechnological Very component much. because it embeds itself in our mental machinery. We think in terms of money. It lets us plan, negotiate. Um, yes it, it's, a, it's a it's an yeah. incredible form of data compression right yes. you, you can just translate things to dollars you can process way more decisions than you could thinking about the individual qualities yes. of everything that you ever do very much so, so it's just, and it's
1: coordinating distributed cognition
0: uh, it is yeah, 100% yes yes it is prices are expressed in money price is the nerve signal coordinating yes. distributed cognition here 's where it gets interesting, I think, so if money is at least part psychotechnology, I guess it's kind of a hybrid in a way, yeah. hybrid technology, Definitely. psychotechnology, somewhere in this blurred line. Uh, we know that changing psychotechnologies has this influence on us, you know yes this yep profound we have an institution today that's called the central bank, yes, and if you would imagine that um this nerve signal that's meant to coordinate all this market action now if there was noise introduced to that yes. signal channel yes that's what's happening when we print money effectively it's it's you know something's gone wrong in the marketplace these businesses are failing right which means they're they're not satisfying wants or they're not doing it profitably so in normal capitalism these bi- like darwinism they would fail yeah. they would die yeah. their component the, the capital that componentizes them would then get reassimilated into the market to a higher and better use. But when right. a, the central bank prints money and they buy these companies or they keep them on life support, and by the way, this is funny. They actually call them zombie companies. Right. By the way, this, this is the term that people use, which yeah, gets into yeah. your, we'll talk more yeah. about zombies later, but it, it interrupts the signaling process and it, 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 pathologizes distributed cognition. And then we end up with these entities living that aren't satisfying anyone's wants. They're just they're parasites effectively. You know, the central bank is a parasite. They're they're capitalizing these other parasitic organizations. And so I wonder what corruptive effect this has on us. It's like we've corrupted right. the psychotechnology that's so essential to us. We then see all these downstream effects in the culture
1: um, it's got. It's. I mean, it's got to have a huge impact. Um, I, I like. I, I so. Given the argument we've made, it has to have a significant impact. It's not something that I put thought or study into. Which makes it a really good question. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, the degree to which that's messing up. I, I guess it has to be. There has to. I'm worried that there's that there. I guess I'm like it's, it's, causation's all almost always multivariate, not univariate. Yeah. Variate. Yeah. And uh, so I'm so I'm wor- I'm worrying about offering any particular speculation because I'm worrying about confounds. But so it's reasonable that there should be some corrupting effect if money is servicing as a, um, as a psychotechnology, then corrupting it will have huge impacts on cultural cognitive structures in a profound way. But on the other hand, given what we said earlier, money per se as a compressive entity also will in and of itself have potentially deleterious effects on culture and cognition. And so maybe maybe one way of understanding, I'm not saying governments do this by any means, mm. but one way of trying to specify the normativity of government intervention is to say, well, governments are supposed to try and ameliorate the side effects of having to use money that that are the inevitable trade-off, but they shouldn't be doing this other, other corrupting thing over here.
0: Mm.
1: And, and that goes towards Plato's idea that right, we should be selecting people to govern who are the most knowledgeable about how the society is actually running. Uh, um, I, I wouldn't feel confident to be in this position. Um, and, and I'm just, <laughs> you can hear the hesitation in my voice. I'm very hesitant about any of this. You know more about a lot of this than I do. But I was, I was trying to say, there might be a way of, we understand, because I'm very interested in this proposal, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. re-understanding the role of government as, let's get very clear about how it, like it they can be corrupting the psychotechnology in a deleterious fashion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And let's distinguish that from how they are needed to compensate from the fact that money per se is going to have deleterious side effects because it's a compressive function. Yeah, I wonder... That's a proposal. Uh, yes, I think
0: that about the second piece... Um, to compensate for money pushing us towards the more quantitative perception yeah. of reality. I think that's where language really comes into play, right? It's like to describe
1: well, qualities of something, you need really good clear I language. Of, I was thinking of, but again, I'm thinking of language. I'm, I'm not thinking of just language. I'm thinking the thing that was in my mind was religion. Because religion gets us out of the propositional into the procedural, the perspectival, the participatory. It gets mm. us to engage in transformation. It uses myth to push our awareness into these fractal things. It's doing all of that, mm-hmm. right? And and, and the, the, the and so religion and the market used to have this sort of co-moderating relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something Thomas Bjorkman talks about um, in the world that we want. Um, he actually talks about how we had three things. Uh, we had the state for we need coordinated labor, irrigation. We, we have to coordinate labor. Like yeah. We have to get people to cooperate and a lot of stuff. Like yeah. Try defending your country on your own. You can't, right? You need to get people together. Just yeah. to use a, a yeah. non-controversial example, yes. Yes. the state, and then you have culture that's supposed to be compensating, right? Uh, they're all supposed to be compensating for each other in this right. sort of mutually constraining triad, and and then he argued like we 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 we've lost all the distinctions um, and everything is, is is sort of merging into a homogenous thing. Um, so maybe the proposal is better that we need because I I don't like the idea of a government religion. That's a really bad idea. Yeah. But we need yeah. but we need we need. We need social institutions in which people are engaging in religious, spiritual, cultural transformation in ways that give them an arena other than the money market system. Yes, I guess. Yes, yes, yes. And then we would need something like the state to properly adjudicate in the gray zone between these two. And that's what yes. it used to be. Right. That's what it used to be. I don't know. I, maybe yes. that's an accurate and medieval and i should just not no, no. i mean i am persuaded by thomas's argument that we're in trouble because we don't have we we don't have counter we don't have counterbalances we, we used to have a counterbalancing system between three spheres right. we've lost that and so the system is is spinning out of control in in, in certain ways
0: yes yeah i think um they, they, there's a term for this in complex adaptive systems they're they're like buffers or shock absorbers right or yeah. um in a in a yeah dissipators in a maybe in a political institution sense this is like the segregation of powers or duties you know the um, yeah
1: it's 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 kind of a checks and balance model it's 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 about you know selective and enabling constraints any self-organizing system needs right that those Mm counterbalancing constraints or it'll start to go into vicious cycles yes one way or the other so that, so but, 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 but I but I didn't want to I'm I'm not trying to paper over. Oh sorry, that was a bad that was a bad pun. I'm not trying to paper over your, your point. There's a point that you're making that I still want to, I, I still want to, it's a gem point, right? That if we remember that money is an inf, a, a, an information an information flow and management system for distributed yep. cognition, then Messing around with money could have very deleterious effects on a deep level on people's cognition. Yes Yes that I think yeah. is an important point.
0: Yes, so I'd like to, and this is all I'm just kind of thinking out loud here i'm not I'm not proclaiming any of this as a some kind of fact, but I would like to propose that money. So again, I'll use the term protocol. Protocol is this this norm yeah. for interaction, right? We yes. have yes. we have language yeah. protocols, we have nonverbal, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And, they, and protocols, again, back to Whitehead, they tend to be the thing that we put beneath our conscious awareness, right? They just become implicit in our behavior or embedded in our behavior, I guess, where you yes. don't even think yes. about yes. it, but it's yeah. performing a very important function, allowing very us to, to connect, you know, mind or action properly. So I think money, proposing money as the base layer protocol for human interaction. This is something that works cross-culturally in theory. Like if we're just look, use gold, for instance, you know, you don't need gold is sort of culture agnostic. Like so long as a a group was ever plugged into distributed cognition in a way that they understood trade, you understand that gold is valuable. I don't need to understand your cultural norms or... Um, whatever surrounding it. So there's this uh, it's a psychotechnology that we're so I guess maybe say, put it this way. there's a, if it's a protocol, then we're building applications, if you will, on top of the protocol. And these applications can really be businesses, could be social institutions. Yeah, could even be yeah. religious institutions, I think you could say. Like a lot of the thing that led to the downfall of the medieval church was their economic corruption, right? They were taking yeah, in indulgences yeah. Yeah. and you know yeah, all yeah, of yeah. that. So I do agree that there's a trade-off when we start to look at things through money, like it's just we're quantifying things or so giving up a qualitative yeah. yep, resolution yep. on reality, if you will. But to the to the degree that we can keep that base layer protocol incorruptible, we can then make better, we can build better applications on top of it, like yeah. better businesses, better social institutions, whatever. And that is that. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, it's I'm 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 blurred here because okay, money's a base layer protocol, but it's also a psycho technology. If we can make that incorruptible, which is essentially what Bitcoin is, it's an incorruptible yeah. protocol, something that no one can change. Yeah, then all of a sudden we're 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 Cleansing the protocol layer so we can build better institutions and businesses on top of it, but we're also cleansing the influence the psychotechnology has on us, right? We're, the that's central that's- bank today, so just for an instance, the central bank today can just print money. They could go buy any business in the world. So that, say they just decided that uh, zombie tissue production was a good business to be in. They could go and just bid the shares of that stock. So kingdom come, essentially. No market actor wants to buy any zombie tissue, but the central bank has just effectively twisted the valuation or twisted distributed cognition towards an aim that they arbitrarily determined you know and when i say this, the the shareholders of central banks are like point zero 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 one percent of the population yes yet they on. control. The yeah, salient, yeah, yeah. the market based salience landscape, if you will, of, of all market actors, you know, 8 billion people. Yes, yes. So <laughs> it's like, holy shit, we're in quite the pickle here. Um, we, we, it's, a kind I, of, I,
1: it's a kind of tyranny, is what I hear you saying.
0: Yes, it's an economic tyranny, but it twists our perceptions on the world, right? Where people, and I think you see this, people idolizing the dollar, people idolizing wealth, people. Yes. Fiat culture, fiat mentality.
1: You made an argument last time that would strengthen the argument you're making now, if I understand you correctly, which is they not only idealize it, there's a craving because there's a sense in which, like you were saying, like you, you have to consume. You were yes. you made the argument you you it forces you into a consumerist mentality. Isn't this a clear example of what you're talking about? Yes, because, yes. Because right? The because the, the, the currency is corruptible right? You, you are always incentivized to, cons- to translate it into other things as fast as you possibly can.
0: So you called this, I believe, temporal discounting?
1: Yes. Hyperbolic discounting. Hyperbolic yes. discounting. So this- and- Yeah, you're, you're co-opting. So hyperbolic discounting is across species, but yeah. you're, you're hijacking that function when you we're like, part of what's powering consumerism is you already have an in Bread. You have an inbuilt, not in bread. That was exactly the wrong word. You have an inbuilt. You have an inbuilt, right? Uh, uh, you, machine or hyperbolic discounting. I'm sorry. I'm talking about salience discounting.
0: Is that a different? Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. Okay. Yes. So this, in Austrian economic speak, is they call time preference. So the lower yes. your time preference, the more long term oriented you are, and the yep. higher your time preference, the more short term you are. One right. major component of this. Is money or the interest rate. And it's if your yeah. money's losing value over time, you have a direct financial incentive to spend it before it loses value. So this yes. has the effect of making you, of raising your time preference, which is a bit counterintuitive because that means making you more short term.
1: Yes, yes, um, yes.
0: And it, that's, and a lot of Austrians argue this too, that civilization is quantified by how
1: collectively long term thinking we are. Yeah, we can't do intergenerational projects like we used to be able to. We used to be able to build cathedrals. Exactly. Um, Zach talks about how education has gone from being an intergenerational relationship to being a much more highly localized uh, relationship. Um, Yeah, so it sounds like you're happy with my proposal that a specific instance of your argument is a consumerist uh, mentality that is plugging into and exacerbating a biological predisposition towards hyperbolic discounting, salience yes, discount. absolutely. I think, I think, I think that's, a, that's a bona fide good argument. I think that's a good argument. And I would add to it, so it's, that is
0: inducing us into capital consumption more than it is capital yeah. accumulation, which unwinds civilization. Well, again, another metric for how civilized we are is how much capital have we accumulated you could think of capital as like a buffer against risk or uncertainty. You know, things yes. go wrong, we have resources to draw upon and survive. Um, so it's drawing down this stock of civilization, if you will. And then it's also because of the price distortion I mentioned earlier, it's causing a misallocation of capital. So the capital we do put to work, it's not going to work consistent with market actor uh, wishes, right? People buy, voting with buying and selling, it's increasingly uh, directed by the policy of central banks, effectively. It goes from being a supply and demand, this emergent, spontaneous dynamic, to something that's centrally planned and determined arbitrarily. And that's really so, bad, too.
1: Is it not the case also that one of the things people are going to convert their money into in a consumptive manner, is it going to try and convert their money into status and power? Yes. Uh, I- and so you're going. Is, it's going to be a corrupting influence on politics as well. Then is that is, is is that reasonable to surmise from what you've been saying? I am about to publish this piece. Actually, it's funny you bring that up. That
0: the very notion of politics, the reason it is such a major component of our individual and group identity, is because property rights can be violated. So there's an incentive to try and get as close to the seat of power as possible which in this mm. case, it's the government, the monopolists on violence, they are the enforcer of property rights. So they determine whose property is what. And if they don't, they again, when they print money, they're violating people's property rights. They're stealing from anyone that's using the dollar as a store value, for instance. Uh, when they give you a mandatory lockdown or a mandatory vaccine or eminent uh, domain, which is where they directly confiscate your property, all the entire, Purpose of government is to preserve property rights, but it's nested because property rights can be violated. The enforcer of the property rights can violate them to their own interests, and this is another lens on Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin's the first property right that's independent of the monopoly on violence. So it only depends on computer code, and it's just information. So you don't need. Um, a local monopolist on violence, you know, saying enforcing the rights via, via the law or whatever. So sorry, yes. long long answer to your question. I think the very emphasis of politics in the modern age is premised on the viability of property. So I think as a result of Bitcoin succeeding, we'll actually care. You won't, We will have much less of a reason to care about one another's political leanings if property can't be violated. It's like, if I don't like what you think, we have a disagreement, well, great. We just go our separate ways. But in the current model, it's like trying to force this whole, um, these uh, heterogeneous viewpoints under one umbrella, if you will, in the nation. And it's creating this political strife and discord that's not necessary. We would we just have smaller, more fragmented government that was more specific to the wishes of, of its population. I see. I see. Are you like. And hmm. I'm going to send you that piece, actually, if you'll it's not very long, but you influence a lot of it because I talk about psychotechnologies a lot at the end. Well, I appreciate that, it, it, right? I think that what right. this is and back to the institutional overthrow, the inventing of the printing press led to the acceleration of literacy and numeracy. But also the printing of money. Well, yeah, later the printing of money, which is kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of ironic in a way. But at the time, it, people woke up to the church, right? They're like, what the what is this dominant institution? I'm giving this money to. All of a sudden they had a direct relationship with God. They could open the book and read the word for themselves because they had the psychotechnology installed. Yeah. Uh, that led so this this psychotechnological upgrade led to this institutional overthrow. But then to your point the printing press now even though it's not even a printing press anymore it's just entry yeah, on a it, database
1: but it originally was yeah. it was
0: a printing press um yeah. that's led to the corruption of money time and time again uh it, it seems like bitcoin could be another one of those upgrades you know to the extent that money is a psycho technology we could now have this protocol that's not corruptible that would lead to the overthrow of the dominant institution today which is you know, this complex of the nation state and the central bank, the monopoly on violence and the monopoly on money. You break the monopoly on money, it at least mitigates the power of the monopoly on violence to the point that it's held in check by the wishes of market actors. Whereas today they do what literally whatever they want. They'll just print currency to do whatever they want until the currency hyperinflates, which is what we've seen time and time again.
1: Well, I mean, um... Two, two overall comments. I, I like the, the the line of argument that you made specifically about this, I think is very good. And I, I, I complimented you a couple Thank times you. along the way. Um, and I'd like to read the piece. Um, I, 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 maybe it's also a difference of what we mean by politics. I mean, I have an Aristotelian notion, which is a very different notion, mm. which is politics is the ethics of distributed cognition, right? Mm. What we're trying to do is figure out we, we, Aristotle, man is inherently a social animal. And what he means by that is most of what we do is in distributed cognition. And that that distributed cognition has ethical requirements on us that are not the same as our own self-interest. And so how, and politics is about how do we balance those off against each other? And that one of the functions of government is to try and say, uh, like, how are we going to balance off where we need to work together um, and, and how we're dependent on distributed cognition. You didn't invent English, neither did I. Right, right, yes. Right, and collectively in distributed cognition. But the language has changed from 300 years ago. Who changed yes. it? Right. No right. one right. person changed yeah. it. Everybody changes it, right? Yeah. And so, and I'm not saying we should. I'm not. I'm only using that as example of distributed cognition. I'm not saying governments should come in and legislate language. Definitely. But, not. <laughs> right, right. But the point, the point I'm trying to make is that you have to right, and uh, uh, you have to you have to have something that manages the relationship between right our individual projects yes and our collective projects yes, right? yes. and i and so for me there's also an ethical domain uh for because i mean I don't, i'm not i'm not like, like i i hope it's clear i'm not like a, a, like exhaustively disagreeing with you but I think there are cultural protocols, I'll use your word. Mm-hmm. I think there are cultural protocols that have to do with distributed cognition that are not the same as the protocols that have to do with the management of property. The reason I say that is because how, it, how property is understood and how much property you can have varies widely across cultures. And that nevertheless, you see cultures having these, these protocols in place. Um, so, you know, and that was one of the issues you know, with the grassy narrows community, we talked about in the book, right? There's yeah. a difference, again, back to homing and housing, there's a difference between the Western concept of property and the indigenous concept, yes. and, right? Yes. And between what's communal property and what's individual property and part, not, not all, but part of the disaster there was a, a disjunct in those notions. And so yes. I would want, I would, I, I'm not trying to undermine your argument. I think it's a good argument. I'm trying to amend it by saying I think there's other things that are in the political sphere.
0: Uh, agreed, and I'll I'll clarify the definition of politics I was working from, which I had never heard Aristotle's. Uh, yeah. The ethics of distributed cognition, as you define it. Well, that's it. my that's my gloss on oh, it. Yeah. He okay. Yeah. Verses. That's yeah. um, that's an excellent definition. It's not the one I was working from was uh, Clausewitz. Have you heard of him? Yes. He wrote on yes, war. Yeah. And yeah. he just says, you know, I think his quote is war is the continuation of politics by other means. By other means. Yes, yeah. So yes, we're effectively and cl- clearly politics exists at a micro level in human affairs all the time. You know, we're all we all have our own little agenda and our aims are colliding and yeah. we're trying to sort it out. But to the point where that those that microcosm of political decisions is then imposable on a broader population. Yes. Depends on the confiscatability or violability of property. It's like, here's the threat of force. You listen to my opinion or decision, or else. And the or else is a violation of property. And here's where this is where the line gets blurry again. Okay. Because you
1: mean something broader by property. Well,
0: property, as actually defined uh, in its deepest sense, like in the libertarian tradition. it really is about first of all it's a relationship we always think property is a thing like it's land or a house or a business property is a an exclusively acknowledged relationship between the owner of the asset and the thing in question so the property is the relationship not the thing and the ultimate the closest most form of the most personal form of property is your own time right you own yourself you own your own time no one can tell you how to move your left arm or what to think or what to do And you forge other property relationships by combining that time that you own of yourself with nature in some useful way. You go out and plant a garden or you build a business or whatever it may be. So um, to the extent the state violates your time, even, it's not just your possessions is the point, right?
1: Um, Violation of your time and how you spend your time. That's what you mean by it.
0: Yes. So if they're violating your relationship with your time, which they are through taxation and inflation, they're effectively stealing your time. Um or they're outright confiscating your property. All of these things are a political imposition, right? It's someone's opinion that's like this is the way things should be. Great. I'm not saying it's just purely one guy's opinion, which would be an authoritarian dictatorship. Yeah. Maybe there's a more distributed version of it like we have in representative democracy or whatever, pick your form of governance. But the point is that once that consensus is reached, a limited consensus, it's imposable through the confiscation of property. Whereas if you have something like Bitcoin, it's money that no one can do anything about. So if, if you just assume the whole world's on a Bitcoin standard, you could reach these political decisions in Washington and then they'd be like, all right, go out and impose them. And people will just be like, what? You can't tax me you can't inflate me how can you tell me what to do you know there's right. it doesn't eradicate violence you can still point a gun at someone and tell them what to do but this way of
1: but, that, but how does it encourage cooperation uh, i
0: would absolutely. argue that money
1: is what encourages cooperation actually is that basically no no, protocol? no, 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 no. i'm sorry my, my question is directed that way how would bitcoin improve uh the capacity for cooperation it's amazing also, this is what's amazing about it. So
0: my argument here would be that the prevalence of politics is related to the ROI on violence, right? The more viable or or stealable property is, the more incentive there is to get, to gain control of the political mechanism or to get as close to uh, the political apparatus of power as possible or the printing press, right? You, you have more incentives to become more politicized and rent seeking in an economy where the property can be stolen. But when a, in an economy where the property cannot be stolen, which would be more of a Bitcoin based economy, your incentives now become productive cooperation. I want to have a long-term trading relationship to create wealth with this, these other counterparties, because I, mm-hmm. there's no incentive for me to violence. I could go and bomb them and fight them. And then I can't steal the money at the end of the day. So there's no, there's no carrot at the end of violence or a smaller right. carrot, you could say. Right, so right, it, right, right. And this is where we get back to that kind of psycho-technological upgrade. Is like we've got a new form of money that lowers the return on investment to violent and coercive activities. So it so completely you, turns human action another direction.
1: That's very interesting. So you see yeah. it, I mean, and you see it like with argumentation. I'm not just saying it's your opinion, You've got argumentation. You see you see it as a way of making, and I mean this seriously, of making human interaction more peaceful. Absolutely, through a direct financial incentive.
0: And it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot to get your head around because violence or coercion that is the statist mode of human organization. That's been the alpha and omega of human organization since the dawn of time, right? Whoever has the biggest stick. We've gotten away from it slowly, but we're still in it, even though we don't realize it. It's like you get a tax bill once a year. Did you negotiate that tax bill, or the rate, or did someone just tell you what you're going to pay? Okay, you wouldn't do that with any other industry. You wouldn't go buy a car and they'd just be like, you know, not it's not negotiable. It's like everything in the market is negotiable. It's the rules even are negotiable. They're consensual. And that's how we, we, we land on these um, you know, useful rule sets. But to the extent that it's involuntary, there has to be the threat of force behind it. Otherwise, no one would adhere to it. So this is like moving
1: us away from the threat of force in economics. That's a very interesting position, Robert. And I don't mean that in a dismissive neutral way. I mean, that, that, yeah. like, that's thought provoking. Um, I, I, I've uh, I've not heard an argument made this way about the possibilities of Bitcoin bringing about a significant transformation in human cognition and and distributed cognition, both individual and distributed.
0: Thank you. Um, I you know it, again, this book actually was the beginning of the journey on this one, the Sovereign Individual book. Yeah, this was written in ninety seven, and it's it predicted social media. It predicted. Um, what it called anonymous digital cybercash, which we call Bitcoin today. And the general thesis of the book is that the movement into the digital age, what they call the microprocessor, would essentially subvert and destroy the nation state. So a lot of the functions we've depended on government to satisfy historically can now be satisfied. That prediction has largely been confirmed. And they also predicted um, a global pandemic emerging once the state realized it was losing its power that once they saw the existential threat to control that the first thing they would do was a pandemic to reinforce the validity of their borders so and this book again was written in 97 so um and it's honestly the book is great but then if you go into the bibliography there's been a there's Tens of thousands of pages have been written on the economics of violence historically. You don't learn about it in school at all, but there's a long history and tradition here of studying this. And um, you know, this is one of those principles that really Western civilization is founded upon: is property rights. Like it's, Ayn Rand says this is the the quintessential human right. Without property rights, without ownership over your own time, how can you have any other form of civilization? so we've had this marginalized form of property right up until this point i guess is the the big proposition hmm so
1: it's clear that chimps pursue status Mm -hmm. and there's violence associated with that Mm -hmm. My concern is if we remove, uh, I'll, I'll, maybe this isn't the right word economically, but if we remove wealth as the way by which we mark status and thereby that, is, and then wealth incentivizes violence, the argument you've made, my concern is human beings will just find another way of competing for status because status is intrinsically valuable to them.
0: Yes. Um, I, I would qualify that real quick. So, this is, we're not removing wealth. Okay. Um,
1: so I, maybe I said I might have been using the wrong yeah, word. So,
0: yeah. So uh, wealth. I mean, wealth is we we trade and create capital. We become richer. We can you know yeah. Yeah. solve
1: more problems more easily. Um. But, but but what I'm what I'm suggesting is, are, are I mean, the people are also bad faith actors in distributed cognition because they rigged the game in order to win the status competition. Yes. So that's a great, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah.
0: If we consider again, money, the base layer protocol, right? It's the, yeah. what money is to socioeconomics, thermodynamics is to physical reality, something like that. Right? Like it's the rules. Yeah. But so therefore the incentive to control the rules has, that's the whole game. There's a, uh, what does Rothschild say about this? He who has the gold makes the rules. Historically right. that's been the norm. Yeah. Right. But now Bitcoin is the new game. It's like an incorruptible rule set. It's some it's a man-made invention that no man or government or institution can control. It's just mm. been it's like just a protocol that's been placed out there and it's ossified and so it's an invariant. Maybe we could look right. at it that way. Yeah. The invariants force organisms to adapt their strategies to them, right? Organisms have to adapt their strategy to gravity. It's not like we're trying to figure out how to turn gravity off or anything. It's just no option.
1: So Bitcoin
0: is sort of like that in the economic sphere. It's just this new invariant rule set that incentivizes everyone to play because it's in your self-interest to play, to hold the money that no one can steal, no one can inflate. Um that it simultaneously kind of saves us from ourselves in a way, at least in the right. through the lens of violence. Like we've been, you know, corrupting the money and then going to war, which will, by the way, the central bank, that's really what it was set up to do. Yes. Government yes, doesn't have, have enough money, print more money, which is stealing yep. from the productive economy so we can go to war. So now if you eliminate this mechanism of war financing and you add in the fact that money can't be really stolen if you if you custody it properly it just disincentivizes violence in a radical radically new way
1: mm.
0: Mm. and so i wonder you know the printing press
1: changed us how much so you're saying i mean in addition to the normative argument that you've just made which i'm hearing uh, and i'm appreciating mm. uh you are saying that you now with me you're trying to also make a cognitive argument, which is a descriptive explanatory prediction, namely that if we were to adopt Bitcoin, that's the normative argument is we should. But if we were, you think we should expect or predict significant changes um, in well, consciousness and cognition, salience landscape, um, consumerism would go down, competitive violence would go down. These are the kinds of predictions you're making. Is that correct? Am I understanding you correctly?
0: Yes. And I'm not. I don't take, like you, I should be better about quoting my sources as you are, because a lot of this is me just, you know, pulling it from distributive cognition and channeling here. But here's one I got. Here's another, this would be a moral aspect to it. I got this from Gary North, who wrote a book called Honest Money. Uh, It's an excellent book on the Christian principles of economics, Um, but really just describing economics and then layering a Judeo-Christian lens over it. Take this simple example. This is the, the parable of the winemaker, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a winemaker in a centrally banked economy, and he knows that the central bank just doubled the money supply from, say, $1 trillion to $2 trillion. He's been selling his bottle of wine for $20 a bottle, right, historically. But he knows he's going to get hit by inflation, right? You double the money supply. Let's just say for simplicity's sake that for him to keep the profit margin on his wine he would need to double the price he need to go from $20 a bottle to $40 a bottle so in an inflationary economy he basically has three choices he can one double the price of his wine this would cause his customers to look elsewhere clearly you double the price customers are supply and demand they're going to look elsewhere his second option is to keep his bottle uh, priced at $20, right? And he would just eat the loss. So that inflation would just come out of his profit margin. If he had a 30% profit margin on it, I guess it would be cut in half. Or maybe I'm not doing the math right, but he could eat the loss or he could pass that on to his customers. Or he can do some some combination of the two. But his third option would be he could water down the wine or use cheaper ingredients or inferior ingredients so he could keep selling the same bottle of wine at the same price, but he would have lowered his cost. So he kept his profit margin the same. But what this is tantamount to doing is effectively defrauding his customers. Right? He's, selling his, yeah, he's yeah. selling his customers the same bottle of wine they expect, but it's actually this inferior product. So when a winemaker faces this decision, he is forced to weigh, effectively, his moral integrity versus his financial integrity, because even if he's honest, if he's purely honest, he doubles the price of his wine. So his customers are getting the same bottle of wine, same ingredients, he has the same profit margin. Uh, to the extent that he is not purely honest, he's facing if he doubles the price of his wine, he's facing competition from any other winemaker that would be willing to compromise. You know, even at the margins, a couple of drops of water. It incentivizes
1: people to deception.
0: It incentivizes you into deception in the short run through the manipulating of money.
1: But that's also just a function of the temporal discounting overall.
0: Yes, it is, which is influenced by the the rate of currency depreciation. Right, right. So there's this this corruption, you know, like it's the original sin, like propagating (laughs) forward. It's like you... You lied about the money supply. It used to be one for one gold. Then it's like, oh, it's two for one gold. And then it's like, oh, it's you can't redeem it for gold at all. We're just going to print it ad infinitum. And this deception propagates out into socioeconomic reality. And it mm. screws up all of us. Um, so that's just another angle. And I, I'm trying to identify the connection, you know, and I think your work, again, this point of psychotechnology and how there's this conformity between creation and creator gave me a vernacular or angle through which to consider it. Yeah.
1: This is... uh, uh, I've never thought deeply about money as a technology or psychotechnology and its relationship to distributed cognition. So I'm very much appreciating uh this conversation and uh, the places we're getting into. It's it's very thought provoking. It's making me um it's making me think of a lot about the connections between a distributed cognition, um economics, and then ultimately our biological embeddedness in the environment and things like that. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that.
0: Oh thank you. Um it, it's very much helped me sharpen the language. Whereas before to say like, Oh, the, and this is written about the moral standard and the monetary standard are inexorably linked. A lot of Austrians have written about this, but I don't mm. know that anyone ever identified the actual mechanism that connected them.
1: Mechanisms
0: are like- it was just an observation. It's like, Oh, well look what happened in this culture. They printed a bunch of money. They became degenerate gamblers and then it collapsed but there was not an a specific mechanism
1: identified that's what i'm trying to do no and i think i think what we're working out together if, uh, if you'll allow me to take some of role course. in this which is we're working out that the mediating factor is distributed cognition the distributed cognition and the system the system of psychotechnologies that constitute and regulate that distributed cognition yes
0: of which i think you know, they, they call money the language of value. Yes. Right? It's, and it's just like, if you corrupt, if you, this is like almost in, in uh, you know, government propaganda, or communism has done this a lot where they bastardize the language. Yes. If it loses its meaning, all of a sudden it
1: becomes. we we uh, we've just done it in general too. I mean, I, like we, I, I, I very often go in this series about how there's like, there's, there's these there's a there's a continual force of trivialization and degradation of the meaning of terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it, like you take the term ecstasy, which originally meant to stand beyond yourself in transcendence, mm-hmm. and then it got re- reduced to just an, a sort of extreme emotional experience, and then it got reduced to the name of a drug that can reliably bring about that sort of extreme mm-hmm. altered state of consciousness. And we've lost we've lost like uh, the significance. So, so language has always got that, there's a, there's a trivialization process because people are trying to do the compression. Yes. Right? Right. But language is also counterbalanced by this generation, there's novelty where there, we're constantly generating new terms yes. um, um, and creating new terms. Um, and it's interesting for my own work, um, and you've expressed it and I appreciate that, a lot of people like the language that I'm generating but I also get people who really dislike uh, uh, all, all the terms and all the language precisely because it's, you know, it's an extra burden on, it, it, it's, it's, it's complicating, yes. right? It's, why can't you just use simple language? Well, and, and I'm not saying people aren't right to criticize me because I, like every professor, I will tend to stray. Yeah. But on the other yeah. hand, you have to be careful because if you're always using simplified language, you're always simplifying your thought. And sometimes you need to complexify your thought. Yes. Right? Right. And, so, and, and it's like words are basically the coinage of thought. And, and, and then that's yeah, an old exactly. metaphor going back to ancient. Yeah. Yes. Going back to ancient Greece. And um, in Dodge, and he's saying he would deface the currency. And he meant he meant the currency of thought. Right. Um, so I, I, I appreciate you... Trying, sorry, that means like you're failing. I appreciate the effort you're putting into trying to get at plausible proposals for the mechanisms mm-hmm. that are relating um, distributed cognition to money. I think yes. I think that's that's very good work. Thank you. I, I'm just
0: endlessly fascinated by it, and um, so maybe. Let me throw something else I, out here. I, also,
1: I just want to, sorry, I just want to praise you a little bit more. I mean. Uh, <laughs> you're too kind. <laughs> well, it's, how can I say this? I don't want to be offensive. Um, I'm not easily offended if it's coming at me. Uh, well, I'm, not, I'm not worried about offending you because you're a good faith actor. And I, I've got that. I, I generally don't like people who like Ayn Rand, for example. Uh, because, I actually don't uh, know
0: much about Ayn Rand.
1: I've just heard it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. I'm, not, and I'm not, I'm yeah. not, trying to mi- I, what I mean is, but, you know, the virtue of selfishness and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, But I see in you a commitment to real moral purpose. Like there's moral mm-hmm. argument behind it. You, you, pr- you present arguments with historical plausibility that could lead to the reduction of violence and the reduction, uh, you know, uh, uh, of incentives to certain kinds of irrational and immoral behavior. And I think that is praiseworthy. I think that's praiseworthy.
0: Thank you. I stand on the shoulders of Austrian economic giants. Like I I credit Mises mostly. Uh, I mentioned the book, The Sovereign Individual, which is not Austrian economics per se, but there's a long history of thought about this, about how government is at the core of many problems in the world. The fact, this coercive element to society, which has historically been necessary, by the way, we needed this monopoly on violence to have property rights, but the technological realities of today potentially are allowing us to evolve past it. This is, um, what's a good analogy here? Maybe um, like, you know, slavery used to be much more common, Yeah. right, before we figured out really technology changed a lot of that and then technology yes. changes morality
1: in a way I mean it, 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 it it's interesting because you have two things coming together um, for slavery um, and this argument was not original to me uh, but slavery can only slavery could only act was only actually abolished and probably could only be actually abolished and I'm not saying that slavery is justified I'm not I'm not talking about that we're talking about the ability to actually abolish it. Yes. because uh, you could get enough of people to uh, agree with to do that. Yes. I, you need the industrial revolution. You basically yes, have, to, exactly. right, you have to make right. Although paradoxically, it's a bit of the industrial revolution that causes the explosion of slavery in the South, the United States, it's the invention of the cotton gin, right? Right. The slavery yes. was fading. But yes. but but it's but then the further industrialization of the north was meaning slavery was. So That's I agree right. with it's, that, yeah. but you also have you also have this movement that starts way back early in Christianity and Tom Holland made that argument, right? Where, you know, Christianity challenges infanticide, it challenges, yes. right? It, it, it starts to build all of this, right? Yes. And it's slowly built and then you get Wilberforce and the whole ethical argument. And the two happen to coincide. And then of course you get something similar in the United States. So I do and, think it's reasonable to point out the connections between moral innovation and economic change i think yeah. that's reasonable i'm not i'm not i'm not either smith or marx on this i, I don't think it's i don't think it's economic completely determines the, the moral sphere i don't I, I i find that implausible for a, a lot of reasons but yeah. the, the 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 linking of the two the way you're doing i find very plausible
0: yeah i agree with you it's not a, a... Total explanation, but I think it 's a large contributor um,
1: and I think that's viable. I think you 're making a good point about it and and, um, and i, I, I and, and, and your second point um, that you know your moral purpose is based on the plausibility that you can afford moral change through bringing about certain kinds of economic if that 's the right adjective mm-hmm. economic change I think that 's also a plausible proposal.
0: Yeah, um, thank you. And so sorry, I was just typing something here. There's this other, just to touch on the Christian point again, there uh, you know, I just brought up Gary North and Honest Money, but there's a lot of Judeo-Christian substrate to a lot of this economic thinking as well, where it's drawing principles from the Bible. There's actually arguments that the Protestant Reformation, which uh Protestants, it's the Protestant work ethic, right? That spirit is what became instantiated in capitalism, right? This yes. idea of deferring gratification. And then there's a deeper um, assertion there that actually property rights themselves are rooted in the the ethos of Christ, if you will. We're holding the sovereignty of the individual, right? That you own your time, you own your property more so mm-hmm. than the state. So that that Christ put the sovereignty of the individual above the sovereignty of the state is resonant with the idea the idea of property rights and property rights are the basis of capitalism industrialization the division of labor wealth all of these things so there's something there there's a there's a you know it's like uh, what did Carl Jung say about alchemy it was like the dream from which science was born it's like we need to have this mythology this dream or something to again to work towards i guess to make it a reality Maybe we're,
1: back. Maybe we're back to causality and value. But um, well, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, because, yes, I think the Protestant work ethic, I think Weber's right. It's a significant driver of capitalism. I think that's very clear, uh, at least plausible. Um, but, you know, again, I would say that there's things happening, and I go over this in the series, uh, there's things happening that are, you know, part of Weber's thesis is, You know, it's it's an anxiety about whether or not you have the proper relationship with God and and all of that that difficulty, right? Uh, And that's also driving it. Um, That's what I mean about how I see top-down effects from religious concerns equally. So, so again, I think the emergence and the emanation go both ways. Right, 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 right. Um, I'm going to throw
0: one more thing at you here. And now what I'd like to try and do is... Because as I was watching your series originally, Awakening to the Meaning Crisis, I'm always you know thinking through this lens of money and the corruption of money, yeah. and so now I'm wondering how much could it could the corruption of money be a contributor to the meaning crisis? So one of the things you just brought up was that language is continuously changing, right? There's constantly yeah. new term variation of new terms, yeah. Yeah. and then a counterforce people trying to call it back. Like you said, your critics make it more simple. So specificity and generalizability, maybe that's the uh, force and counterforce. Many new terms, and I don't, maybe you can help me with this. They seem to reflect like new terms and new language development tend to reflect new technological realities. So, and I don't know if there's a term for this or not, but for instance, a lot of people today in the di- digital age, um, I always struggle to come up with examples, but are like, "Hey, let's, let me have a quick download with you."
1: Yes, Or, or yes,
0: "Hey, yeah. uh, you know, she's got her firewall up." That's kind of a less common one. But there's all these little software yeah. hardware analogies we're talking about.: personality. Yeah. So yeah. there's metaphor, right? There's metaphor, but it's metaphor working in a different direction, almost. It's like we created this new tool. And now we're That's using part it. of the
1: way in which the shaping happens, yes.
0: Yeah. So then we're meta- metaphorically adopting that into us. So so what I'm getting at here is if,
1: if it goes language It both ways. This- like it flows. Like, so the king can charge somebody and then yes. we get the idea of an electric charge and then we take that back and say somebody was electric at a party. So you, you can see it coming like all the way around. Yeah. It goes, it goes both ways.
0: Yes. So then, okay, we have the this metaphor feeding back into us from technological realities that are then yep. shaping how we interact. So then I'm wondering like what metaphors are being fed into us from, you know, fiat currency or the corruption of money in a way that's changing how we interact. Um. I, and, and there's there's a website here I'd encourage you to check out. It's a very simple website. It's called WTF Happen1971.com. Mm-hmm. And it so nineteen seventy-one is when we went off the gold standard internationally. And since then, this website lays out a whole gamut of socioeconomic data that shows things that have gone terribly awry since 1971. It's like obesity, suicide, drug addiction, you know, clearly debt, all of these things and i just wonder you know if if we spend on average each of us 40 hours a week working you go to work for money like that it's an indispensable tool to you how much of that is actually influencing your behavior like the characteristics of that particular form of money how much are they feeding back into your your character well, and and one last thing just to put a button yeah. on this is it fiat currency it's a debt based money So it's a, and again, it used to be a token for gold. Then you can't redeem it for gold. So it's an irredeemable debt certificate. And in the Christian tradition, uh, the word, the, the actual original words for, for debt and deception and lies are very closely related.
1: etymologically. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, and you know, we talked about the moral thing earlier with, with, uh, the winemaker. So I'm just wondering, like, is it, is it because we have fraud and theft integrated into our money that it's somehow metaf- the metaphors are shining back into us and causing us to, to just causing us to have a corrupt culture
1: or a meaning crisis? I um, I hadn't considered that dimension in the argument. I mean, one of the defects of awakening from the meaning crisis is I mean, I, I tried to consider as many of the causal factors for the meaning crisis as I could both historical and structural. Uh, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's very plausibly likely that I, uh, I missed things, missed important factors. Um, I didn't talk enough, for example, in this series about social media. I mm-hmm. didn't talk about um, this aspect of things, this argument. Um, so I, I still stand by the arguments I made. I still think the factors I talked about are real and important. But if you're Making the point that this could this could also be a significant contributor or factor, I think that's a very reasonable argument that I should take into account.
0: Yeah, I, I have no, no idea, frankly. I'm just really hypothesizing here, but but the way I, I, I hope I'm responding in kind. I'm not yes. accusing you of anything. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah, I've, i um, again. We it, it's one meaning making tool or faculty. You know again yeah. prices and money all of these things they're meaning making in a very important way for a lot of your decisions day to day yes yeah. yeah. so if yeah. all of a sudden that's unmoored from reality i just thought that it it's got to be disorienting to some extent it is yeah. uh,
1: i think some of the arguments you've made are good um yeah i i, I think for me the, the what i feel comfortable i mean intellectually comfortably saying is um that strikes me as a significant plausible factor that should be incorporated into an analysis of the meaning crisis that I didn't take into account when I made the original argument. Um, but I do think, again, that the other factors that I highlighted in the, in the series are, are very real, very important, the human proclivity to self-deception, uh, right. All, all kinds of things um, uh, that the fact that uh, you know, science unmoored are, our intellectual framework from our existential projects yes uh, things like that i think all of all of those are also very important contributory factors
0: well Uh, agreed completely i would actually even add that you could look at it that way is that fiat currency is self-deception at scale
1: it's yeah it's the
0: belief we could just print money to fix our problems yes yes. essentially and it's and by the way you talk about self-deception
1: uh, and how it leads to addiction. Right. The
0: yeah. reciprocal yes. narrowing.
1: Right. Yes. And I, you, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you make a very good argument. You made it like that. We're basically, we've become addicted in a very powerful way. And I think yes. that's right. Yes. I, I think that's, argu- I think that argument is right. Yeah. Um, that's another
0: one of those analogies used often historically, but there was never a precise causal mechanism Established, right. but I would say there's probably something there. Like we, you do yes, actually become addicted to fiat. You have, you need more each time, and yes. it leads yes. to disaster. You you ultimately the economy. You know, if it doesn't die, it has this mortal event where it has to start over. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so and then I'm just <laughs> this chart. <laughs> the zombie chart at the beginning of the book on zombies, one thing that, can't, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about this next time, but the spike of the use, the prevalence of the use of the word zombie from 1920 to 2008, I think you could put that chart on that website I just mentioned, wtfhappened 1971com because the use yeah. of the word zombie spikes after
1: 1971. Um, really?
0: Yeah, I don't. It, it just. I feel like we're, we've maybe corrupted our collective meaning-making apparatus or mythology
1: to some that's extent. That's the argument I'm hearing you make. Yes, that's the argument I'm hearing you make, and I'm taking it very seriously. I think there. I think there's real value in the argument you're making right now. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, so we're at two hours and forty minutes. Sorry to bombard you the last hour or so with all this. I've just been well, thinking about it so much. But I've I wanted no, to know, it's like was. it's been trapped in this like a sphere. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. your work just gave me the pipe through it. Oh, that's how maybe this works scientifically, you know? So
1: I've been very excited but, to to talk to if you. About it, it. If, you know, well, thank you for that. Uh, I'm glad. I mean, if more, I don't know again if I'm using it, but you know, if economics it was paid more attention to the cognitive science of distributed cognition, like you're trying to do. I think that would be a very valuable thing to do and and vice versa. I think people who are talking about distributed cognition should pay attention to economic behavior as a clear and perennial case of an important form of distributed cognition. I think it goes both ways. And I hadn't thought about that connection very much until I've been talking to you. I'm
0: happy to put it on your radar because I think it's very important here. Um, and we, everything we're talking about, like it, the other thing I keep reminding myself of as sort of I've gotten deeper into the economics is like how tool oriented we are.
1: Like everything I do They're and think. Natural born cyborgs. Yeah, cyborg. Yes, exactly. Andy Clark, we're natural born cyborgs. And, and, and your point is well said that, right, that that, that that we should look at it not as just physical objects, but also psychotechnologies yes. what I've made, and also, you know, collective psychotechnologies for distributed cognition. Yes, very much. And to your I point, guess. ethics and yeah. morality, even. Yes. You know, yes. there's like if you're in
0: a pure state of nature caveman, no one is too worried about ethics and morality. It's the it's the. The wealth we create beneath us that give us this buoyancy, which is through a market process that allows us the luxury and free time to try and think about ethics and morality. And um, so there's just something very fundamental there that I think is often taken for granted. You know, we just, we think morality <laughs> is just some arbitrary thing we plucked out of the air and choose to use. It's like, no, it's kind uh. of a tool itself. And um. I'm getting outside of my bounds here, but just
1: trying to. Well, that's okay. You're you're trying. I mean, um, dialogue happens when both people are moving to the horizon of intelligibility, and they're fo- they're they're on they're on the place where emergent thoughts and proposals are coming to mind that both parties would not have reached on their own. Yes, the purpose of dialogue, right? <laughs> yes, exactly.